I am so grateful to be able to share the Word of God with you today in this way. We are thankful for the provision that God has given to us to be able to share um, this Word. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're studying the Great Resurrection chapter. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Our Father who art in heaven, we are so grateful for this opportunity you have given to us. We're grateful for your word. And I pray now that the power of your Holy Spirit will enlighten this word to our minds and our hearts, that you will apply it to each of our individual daily walks. That you will give us understanding, that you will give us speech to be able to share it with others. We ask that you will bless it, bless it as it goes out, Blessed as it comes into our minds. And we are so grateful that this is the living Word of God that will change hearts with the Holy Spirit in us. We cry out to you for your presence, for your genuine awakening in all of us, and that we will see what you're doing in our midst. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last session, we looked at the order of resurrection. Uh, in verse 23 there, Paul says to the Corinthians, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So in outline form, we actually saw that there are two resurrections that, spirit, that Scripture identifies. The first resurrection is unto life, the second resurrection is unto damnation. The first resurrection has four parts, so don't let that confuse us. Resurrection number one, four parts. First one is the resurrection of Christ. He is the first fruits of those who have slept or those who are asleep, those who've died. Second, the resurrection of the church at the rapture. Third, the resurrection of tribulation saints and for the Old Testament saints, both apparently at the end of the great tribulation. So those are the four parts of the first resurrection. Just so we'll have the whole picture planted in our minds, I want to fill in a couple of things in our outline so that we have a grasp of what scripture teaches us so that we've got the whole picture, the whole understanding, because it's about our future. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 10, Paul tells us something interesting. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10. He says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So what is that? What does that mean? What is the judgment seat of Christ? Believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Don't get that confused because there we will be rewarded. Rewarded. Say the word rewarded. That's the judgment seat of Christ. This is not about salvation. It's not about sin. All sin has already been judged in Christ. How much sin? All sin. All sin has already been judged in Christ. So the judgment seat of Christ is about an assessment 
of the life of a believer that regards what has eternal value. So once I became a believer, am I spending my time doing things that have eternal value or am I just namby-pambying about just doing ordinarily, ordinary worldly stuff? Now, remember Romans chapter eight, verse one says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Saved people will never be condemned. Why? Because Christ was condemned for us. Saved people will never be judged. Why? Because Christ took our judgment on the cross. So we will be saved. Now that's an interesting word and maybe a lesson for another day. But the word saved in the New Testament is in three tenses. There's a present tense, I am being, or I'm sorry, there's a past tense, I have been saved at one point in time when I was born into the body of Christ. I am being saved, present tense, ongoing, and I will be saved in the future. So that's my whole picture of salvation. I don't, it doesn't stop somewhere and all of a sudden I'm going to be judged. So don't let the judgment seat of Christ confuse you. The judgment seat of Christ is a test and a revelation of the character of our works, our behavior. And our works that we have done in our lives are going to be tested, Scripture says, as by fire to see if they've been wood, hay, and stubble works, which won't last through the test, or to see if they've been gold, silver, and precious stones works, which will withstand the test. So go to... 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just for a second. You're not far from it if you're there with us in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. The fire itself will test the quality, not the man, the quality of each man's work. Now, there's nothing wrong with wood, hay, and stubble, but they don't hold up in the testing fire. We're all going to have some of that. We just do. We're human. That, that's just going to happen. But those works that are wood, hay, and stubble don't survive. This is where your life is sorted out. Not the sins, but the non-sinful behaviors. The sins are automatically transferred under the blood of Christ. The, sinful the non-sinful behaviors are going to be tested to see what quality they are. So some of our behaviors have no eternal value. If we spend most of our time with eternally useless things, then we're going to suffer a loss of a full reward in heaven. So the judgment seat of Christ is an assessment of how we have spent our Christian lives for the purpose of receiving rewards. Things that we will serve God with, things that we will be able to lay before the throne of God. I don't know what all we're going to do with them, but I can tell you we want some.
So it is a test of the eternal character of our works, the things that we've done since being saved. So the test is going to burn up useless things, things that don't have any eternal value. Now, when does this take place? Well, apparently this is taking place in heaven while the tribulation is taking place on earth. Remember that Christ appears in the clouds, takes up the church, and the church goes off with him and is busy, and the world is left without a church. So while all of that's going on during those seven years, apparently then the judgment, um, yeah, the judgment seat of Christ is taking place there. After the judgment seat of Christ, all that will remain are the righteous deeds that we've done. That's what's going to be left, the righteous deeds that we've done. So the righteousness of Christ will be our clothing. His righteousness has been imputed to us. When I was saved, his righteousness was put to my account. So we also will have rewards for our righteous deeds. Then we will join together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. A great celebration. The Lamb is the bridegroom. The church or the redeemed saints of all of, of church history is the bride. You can find that in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. So we will be there in our resurrected bodies. Then Christ returns to earth. We will come with him at the end of the tribulation. We will come with him to set up his millennial kingdom a thousand years reign of peace on earth where Jesus will rule the world from the throne of David in Jerusalem. We will be dressed, scripture says, in fine linen. I just know it will be linen that does not have to be ironed. Don't you, don't you want to hear that? Fine linen, beautiful, white, fine linen. For those thousand years, Satan is bound he can't mess with us. He is bound and thrown into what scripture calls the abyss. The Antichrist, Revelation chapter 20, is thrown into the lake of fire. So the tribulation saints and Old Testament saints at the end of tribulation are resurrected. And so for a thousand years, all of us together will rule and reign with Christ on the earth. We'll, we, will, we will be priests of God, Scripture says, and reign with Him. Now, at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is not the same thing as the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat of Christ is for believers to receive rewards for the eternal value of our works. The great white throne judgment is for unbelievers. There will be the resurrection of unbelievers for all of history. This is the second revelation, resurrection. This is the second resurrection. Turn to John chapter 5 for just a minute. John chapter 5 and verse 28. Jesus is speaking. And he said, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds, those who are saved to resurrection of life. 
those who committed the evil deeds, who did not believe and did not receive Christ, to a resurrection of judgment. Two resurrections. Resurrection of life, four parts. Resurrection of judgment. Now turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. John is writing, and the Lord has shown him all of this. And I'll read through verse 15. And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of, into the lake of fire and brimstone. This is at the end. This is at, after the millennium. Where the beast and false prophet are also. So they're already there, and Satan will be thrown in there with them. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. <clears throat> And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven had fled away, and no place was found for them. <clears throat> and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Could they earn their salvation? No. Verse 14. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How do you get your name written in the book of life? By receiving Christ and receiving his life, by receiving his eternal life. So once you're saved and your, your name's written in that book, and so God's going to go down through that book and say, yep, there's her name. But if your name is not there, then there will be eternal separation from God and judgment in the worst of circumstances. At the consummation of everything, Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. The end. He wins. He is everything. Now, go back with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to read verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20. We've already been through most of these scriptures, but I want you to get the context. But now Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since a man, since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, Adam and Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, God, is accepted, God the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection to Christ Jesus. And when all things are subjected to Christ Jesus, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected these things to him, that God may be all in all. What's he going to do? Everything God's given to the Son, he's going to give back to the Father. He's going to give it back to him. Now that gets us to verse 29. Verse 29. Verses 29 through 34 is a section that helps us understand motivations for coming to Christ and living for Christ. Knowing the truth about resurrection and judgment should be an incentive for us. Knowing, if we know about the resurrection, then we will want to be saved. We will want to live for Christ and grow in Christ and live in holiness and produce eternal works, works that will stand up under the test. And it's also going to want to make us want to share the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29 says this, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Whoa. Theologians say that this is one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. Nobody knows for sure what it means. If you read 400 different theologians, you're going to read 400 different ideas. And so we're going to not really know this until we get to heaven. But God didn't put things in his word to confuse us. So there are dozens, dozens of possible interpretations, and we cannot be dogmatic about either one of them. We do know, however, from the teaching of other scriptures what it does not mean. And so that's a great place to start. We don't know for sure what it means. What does it not mean? Hear me. It does not mean that someone can be baptized for a dead person. It does not mean that. Ancient heretics claimed that a person who had died could still be saved and helped by a living person being baptized in their behalf. <clears throat> Paul is not teaching that. And if you, what you do is you have to take a phrase like this and hold it up to the whole counsel of God. What does it say in other places in Scripture? What, what's it about? And so um, they just believed that, that a living person being baptized could be baptized on behalf of somebody that had died, and that dead person would be fine. What do we know from other scriptures? Well, the first thing we know is one is not saved by being baptized. We know that. We've been through tons of scriptures about that. Scripture is consistent about that. Scripture never teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation. Never. Otherwise, the thief on the cross would not have been able to be with Jesus in paradise that day. So scripture doesn't teach that. Second thing, we can't, be, we can't save ourselves by being baptized. How many times over and over do I have to say to myself, nothing I can do can save me. The only thing that can save me is what Christ has done. And so 
if I can't save myself by being baptized, I surely can't save somebody else by my being baptized. Salvation, scripture-wide, cover to cover, salvation is by personal faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That is salvation. That is the only thing that gives us eternal salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That is the consistent and repeated teaching of both the Old Testament and the New Testaments. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. The only way any person has ever come to God, Old Testament, New Testament, is by personal faith. That's the way we come to God. That's the only thing that works. Baptism is an act of obedience that proclaims identity with Christ. We are baptized to be an obedient Christian, not to be saved. So no one is saved by baptism. Now death ends all opportunity for salvation. Scripture is clear about that. There is no opportunity for salvation once a person dies, dies physically. Can't get any spiritual help of any sort after a person dies. It is an outward testimony of salvation. That's what baptism is. I think of it sometimes as like wearing a wedding band. Your wedding band doesn't make you married, but you wear a wedding band because you got married. It is a symbol. They go together. Salvation and baptism go together. They are a pair. But if you get up one day and don't wear your wedding ring to work, it doesn't mean that you're not married. So Salvation and baptism go together. Now, we don't really know what this phrase means, but you know I'm going to play with these words. And uh, I've done lots of reading and lots of studying about this, and this is where I am today. And I stand ready to be corrected and grateful if that needs to be. But look at this. He says, those, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Now, I want you to look with me just for a minute at that word, for. The word translated for is the Greek word, H-U-P-E-R. But I'm not real sure how to pronounce that, but I'm going to call it hooper. So what he says is, what will those do who are baptized, hooper the dead? Now, that word has a dozen or more meanings. So strange sometimes. The Greek language, the, the biblical languages are so much richer than our English language. We might need 15 words sometimes to describe one that they use in the Greek. So this word hooper can also be translated above, about, across, beyond, on behalf of, instead of, because of, and in reference to. All right, so if we go back and say, we can say, uh, what will those do who are baptized above the dead? No. About the dead? No. Across the dead? No. Beyond the dead? No. 
on behalf of the dead. That doesn't fit with the rest of scripture. Instead of the dead, no. Because of the dead, hmm. And in reference to the dead, hmm. For is a perfectly legitimate translation, but so are all these other words. So you have to look at the context. What's he talking about? What is the context? Remember that when we're interpreting scripture, context rules. What is the context? It's just like if I said to you the word trunk, you might think of the trunk of an elephant or the trunk of a car, two very different things. How do you know? You know by the context in which the word is used. So let's look at the context of this. In these verses, 29 through 34, Paul is giving us instruction. Verse 20, for 28 verses in this chapter, the first 28 verses in this chapter, what's he been talking about? He's been teaching us about resurrection. Why would he do that? Why, you know, some people think we don't need to, we don't need to know all of that. Um, don't, don't burden me with all of this knowledge of the order of the resurrection. And, but they, he spends, there's tons of time spent on that in scripture. And so scripture thinks that we need to know this. I'm also really, really, really intrigued. You know, if a person is a new Christian, sometimes we just want to give them milk. We want to give them simple things. We don't want to give them anything complicated like the resurrection. But do you know what? When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, they were very, very young Christians. Do you know what he taught, taught them? The rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Christ will appear in the clouds. Take up those who are dead and, uh, uh, you know, in him alive and they'll meet him together in the air. All of that. 1 Corinthians to very young Christians. So we understand that Scripture, scripture said to us as believers, you need to know this. You need to know this and you need to understand this. So he's told us about that for 28 verses here in this chapter, the greatest chapter in scripture on the resurrection. Um, we know that all people who die will be raised, believers and non-believers alike, in their order. Um, believers will be raised in glorified bodies. That's next time. That's next week's lesson. We will be gathered into heaven with glorified bodies, eternal spirits, and eternal souls. We will still be who we are. We will just be glorified and perfected. We will be recognizable. We will talk. We will still have a personality. We will still have all of that. That's who we are, but we will be glorified and protected. And this is the plan that God is working out in redemptive history. This is our future as believers. Resurrection is real. So scripture teaches us about it. This is the hope of believers throughout scripture. Sometimes we talk about the blessed hope. It becomes especially important at the death of a loved one. Uh, I was going back through some things. Remember Job. Oh, what a hard thing Job endured. Uh, he endured incredible suffering. And he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But you know what else he said? I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth and though worms destroy this body yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Job looked forward to the resurrection. He didn't know all about it that we know. 
He didn't have God's word. He didn't have the New Testament. But he knew that. And he was standing on that. Also, at the um, Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah. Now think about this. Jesus had said, Jesus said, I am present tense, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. Well, how long had Moses and Elijah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob been dead? Long time. But guess what? These men were dead physically, but God was still their God and they were present in his midst. He is. They were alive in his presence. So resurrection hope. And hope is confident expectation. Resurrection hope surely was what allowed all of the apostles to be martyred. They were looking forward to the next thing. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. They were looking ahead. And so when Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, Scripture says, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Looking forward, expecting. We know that that is the future of believers in Christ. We know that we are promised rewards. Why do we need to know all of this? Why do we need to know about the resurrection? Why have we spent so much time on it? Why did Paul spend so much time on it? Because in this context, in the context of these verses here with this hard to translate uh, verse, Paul says, that resurrection is our incentive. It is our incentive. Getting the word out there is going to make some lost people want to be saved. Surely. Getting the in information about the resurrection out there is going to help us endure in our Christian lives because we're looking forward to that blessed hope. We know that there's more coming. It's also going to make us want to grow in Christ-likeness to be mature in Christ, um, to be made holier and holier as we walk through life because we want to be like him and we want some rewards. We want some reward. So resurrection is an incentive. So if we go back to verse 29, look what he says altogether. He says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger in every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, what's he saying in this passage? He's saying, if there is no resurrection, what am I doing all this for? What is my hope? Why, would I, why am I out here doing this if there is no resurrection? Now let's go back to verse 29 and unpack this. 
What if a better resolution, what if a better translation for Hooper is because of the dead? What if, what if he was saying, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized because of the dead? Well, in all of my reading and searching about what this might mean, today my heart is most settled right here. If I can learn more, I'll change my mind and let you know. But for right now, I think that fits the context. What could it mean to be baptized, associated with salvation, baptized or saved? They use that word sometimes interchangeably with salvation. What, what could it mean to be saved or baptized because of the dead? Well, did you ever know of a person being saved because of the death of a faithful believer who died? Have you heard of people being saved at funerals? I have. Sometimes people are motivated to come to salvation because of the testimony and the example of someone, maybe somebody that dies. We've heard testimonies of nurses in hospitals who witnessed the death of a believer who thought, wow, I want to die like that. Maybe you go to a funeral and the hope of reunion for believers is expressed and an unbeliever says, maybe I, I need to think about this. Yes, I really would love to see her again. I really would love to see him again. What is this all about? And it creates a hunger to know the whole truth. Seeing a believer die with joy and hope is a testimony. So the testimony of dead people has influence, has influence. Hebrews 11 tells us that. Hebrews 11 is a chapter that lists a whole lot of dead people who have a testimony. They are an example of how faith behaves. You see a verb after each one of those people, their name and then the verb and so that's the way faith behaves. And so they all lived a life of faith looking for a resurrection. They were expecting it. They were heading toward it. Some were destitute. Some were afflicted. Some were poorly treated, persecuted, wandering in caves, beaten, tempted, and sawn in two. How did they tolerate it? They looked for the resurrection. They knew there would be a resurrection. A few years ago, I read a book that left marks on my heart. The name of the book is The Insanity of God. And it's written by Nick and I.K. Ripken, R-I-P-K-E-N. This is a true story of a man who traveled the world listening to stories of people in the persecuted church, believers who were being persecuted for their faith. It's happening all over the world. And in this book, he tells the story of a man named Dimitri. He was imprisoned for his faith. He was isolated. He experienced a great amount of physical torture. He said there were two reasons for his strength in the face of the torture. 
he had learned two spiritual disciplines from his believing father. And he took those disciplines with him to prison. And for 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, he would stand at attention by his bed, face the east, raise his arms in praise to God, and then he would sing what he called a heart song to Jesus. The other prisoners would laugh, curse, jeer, bang metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. They threw food. Sometimes they threw human waste. They did everything that they could to try to shut him up. Another discipline was that whenever he could find a little scrap of paper, he would sneak it back to his cell and he would pull a tiny piece of charcoal or the stub of a pencil and write that he had been able to confiscate somewhere and hide in there. And he would just write as tiny as he could all of the scriptures and praises that he could think of on that tiny, tiny paper fragment. And he would stick it in a concrete pillar in his cell. When anyone found it, when guards found it, they would beat him. Well, the day came when the guards came to drag him from his cell to the place of execution. And he's, he was dragged down the corridor of the center of the prison. A strange thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the execution courtyard, 1,500 hardened criminals who had shouted curses, who had done everything they could do to shut him up, all stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east, they raised their hands, and they began to sing the song that they had heard Dimitri sing every day for 17 years. One small, consistent light in a prison of huge darkness. Light will always permeate darkness. Always. They cannot live together. Light always wins. Why did Dimitri do all of that? Why did all of those people in Hebrews 11 do that? Why was Paul beaten? Why was Isaiah sawn in two? Because they looked to the resurrection. They cling, they clung, they clung is that a word, to that? They held on to that, knowing that God's word is true. So what we have right here in verses 33 and 34 are incentives for Christ's likeness. Look what he says. Verse 32, he said, if I, from human motives, if I fought those wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now we don't have much time, so let me just make a comment about this. 
This is one of the incentives of Christ-likeness. Resurrection is an incentive of Christ-likeness. So if I want to become more like Christ, I don't need to expose myself to things that will deter me from that. I don't need to expose myself to bad teaching or to immoral influences. I don't need to be dragged back toward that kind of worldliness once I'm in Christ. So what I want to do as a believer is to grow in godly living, to grow in Christ-likeness. Bible calls it sanctification, where I become more, it becomes more and more obvious that I have become, that I've been set aside by Christ. That's our goal. Paul warns them about not being deceived. Now, the danger of bad company, he said, that, that's huge. And remember what we know about the Corinthians. They were surrounded by it. They were surrounded by idol worship. They were surrounded by prostitution. They were surrounded by horrible stuff. It was their culture. And so Paul is warning them about not being deceived about the danger of being in that environment, of being in that culture. Um, Corinthians were listening to wrong teaching. They were associating with some evil people. And that the whole book of Corinthians is trying to correct a lot of that. So this book, the word associating with them actually means communing with them. It wasn't that they just rubbed elbows at the grocery store. They were combining with them. They were communing with them. So they've been getting bad information. Say that people have been telling them that there is no resurrection. So Paul's telling them that's not so. And he says that corrupts good morals. How does he say that? Because wrong thinking produces wrong behavior. Wrong theology, wrong teaching, wrong beliefs corrupt good morals. They corrupt behavior because we behave what we believe. We behave what we're thinking. We live what we really believe. So we can look at our own lives and say, am I living what I say I believe? Does the resurrection matter? Yep, sure does. Of course it does. We are all going to live forever somewhere. We are all going to live forever somewhere. Resurrection to the lost is to be eternally separated from God. Resurrection, if, if the lost people know about resurrection, we pray that it will make them want to be saved, want to be part of God's eternal program. We pray that for all of us who are saved, it will make us want to endure Endure whatever our circumstances are because we look forward to the resurrection and it should make us all want to grow in Christ because we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive rewards for our eternal behaviors, behaviors that will last for eternity. Gold, silver, precious stones that withstand any testing fire. 
I pray that you have a good knowledge now of the resurrection, of what is involved, of who is included, what it means, to the point that you can explain it to somebody else. It's going to happen. And the more we know about it now, the better the incentives are for us to share the gospel, endure difficult circumstances, and grow in Christ-likeness. I pray that we will all understand from the Holy Spirit the meaning of all of that. And next time, we're gonna talk about what do our glorified bodies look like? What are glorified bodies like? Until then, you be reading and praying. I'm gonna be studying and praying. And I look forward to the next time together. God bless you.